Amen. Good morning. There's a story I've told numerous times. It's a true story. You got to love when a preacher starts that off, right? There's a true story. Uh, I was, Casey and I lived in Abilene the first four years of our marriage. Three of those four years, I was preaching at a church about an hour away, and there was one holiday when I had a friend, Luke Norsworthy, who was preaching at a church an hour away in another direction, who reached out to me and said, can you go preach for me over the holiday? Uh, And I said, sure. And he said, well, it's a church of 15 people. If one family's gone, it's going to be a church of seven, uh, but need you to go. So I, I agreed to go do this. I was prepared to do a combined class for all 15 people if they all came and to preach a sermon. And I showed up and that family was there. So there were 15 people there that day in a church that could hold over 200 people. It was a a town that had basically become a ghost town over time. And I showed up and then I found out that I wasn't just preaching and doing a combined class. I was also the song leader for the day. I was also, I had the opening prayer, the closing prayer, I had the prayer for the bread, the cup, and the offering. And not only that, I was the only person mobile enough to move the tray. So in a, in a place of 200 people with 15 scattered everywhere, I would have to go around to one side, take the bread and the cup to the other side. Everything was fine except the song leading part because that's not been something I've done in my life. Everyone else in my family does that. So I thought to myself, what do you do when you step up in front of people and you lead singing? And all my life, I had seen song leaders stand up and they do the Church of Christ cadence, which is, you know, please turn to number 287, 287. So you start with the whole number and then you break it down to the single digit, you know, to help people find the place. So I did that right. I had no clue how to start a song. I don't read music. So thankfully the church, like you always have that woman in the church who knows how to start the song when you don't. And then I had seen song leaders throughout my life move their hands, so I just started moving my hand to what felt like to the beat of the music, and that's when, I'm not lying, Casey from the fourth row held one hand in the air, and she put the other hand on top of it, and she made a motion down. <laughs> like, no hand, all right? So I didn't do the hand thing the rest of the day. And she sat there with her songbook in front of her face, just laughing at the sight of me trying to leave singing. There's a guy in that church named Cowboy, and Cowboy slept through everything that morning. He did not just sleep through the sermon. He slept through the songs. I had to wake him up to give him the bread. He fell asleep between the bread and the cup. I nudged him again to give him the cup. He slept through everything. And after church, I saw Cowboy walking down the aisle to me, and I was like, this dude's about to shake my hand and tell me, great job, young man. And I was prepared to respond to Cowboy with, What was your favorite part? What did God do in your life? Because I knew he slept through everything. But Cowboy slipped me a $50 bill, so I decided just to play it off. You know, just let it go. I've been paid off before. So here's the deal, all right? That's a story that I often tell when I travel places and if I'm speaking at a conference and they give me like a 2 o'clock or a 3 o'clock in the afternoon or if I preach at a church that has an early service, a 7.30 a.m. or 8 a.m. service. Sometimes I tell that story and just let people know, hey, if you fall asleep, it's fine. I've been paid off before. Just slip me a 20 or 50 afterwards and we'll call it even. So I was preaching at a church about a year and a half ago. And it was a church that had an 8 a.m. service. So I started out that service, and I told that exact story I just told you. Hey, if you fall asleep, that's fine. You know, you can pay me off later. And then I jumped into the sermon. And where I was speaking at this place, they asked me to come in and talk about all God was doing in and through Sycamore View and how God was using Sycamore View to be a blessing to the community. So I shared with this church about the movement of God and that God is still just as active as God has ever been and the power of the resurrection. And after church, a gentleman came up to me. 
He's wearing a t-shirt in a church where this church had a lot of suits and ties, a lot of money in this church where I was. This guy was in some jeans that were worn out jeans and a t-shirt. And he came up to him and he had some tears in his eyes. An older man. He said, Josh, I just need you to know I haven't been to church in 20 years before today. For 20 years. And he didn't go into the details of things going on in his life that had kept him from church or whether he was betrayed by people or if he was angry with God or or what had happened. Just 20 years. He had kind of gone wild. And then he had a brother in that church who invited him to come to church. And he came that day. And he heard me talking about the power of the resurrection and how God doesn't want to waste his salvation. So anyone God saves, God wants to use for his kingdom. So this guy said, I don't know what to do, Josh, but I feel like God's calling me to respond somehow today. So I want to go and, and, and live my life in a better way. But then I reached in my pocket. This guy said, I reached in my pocket and I had $180. So I wanted you to have this $180 because I think you would do something better with this in the world. So I'm trusting you with this. So he gave me 180 So two thoughts went through my mind. The first thought was, I've got to tell this story about some dude slipping me 50 bucks a lot more. It went from 50 to 180. And now if I tell the story about 180, maybe somebody gives me 500. And my second thought was, well, he gave me 180, but it's not like I can take my wife to a steakhouse. He did say, I trust that you will do something better with this for God than I would. So I had to get creative with how I was going to use it. But then it just made me start thinking about in my own life and probably in your life too. A lot of times there are moments we give. And the reason we give is because we experience God doing something around us. Most people give for two reasons. Either one, you give out of obedience. And it's just what you do. And there needs to be a consistent offering that comes from your life. Or we give out of the wonder of God. That we see or hear or encounter God do something amazing among us and we give. There are times we give out of obedience. A lot of you this morning, what we just did a few minutes ago is you gave out of obedience. This is just what we do as a church. As we tithe and we give, we believe that God has taken our offering and doing something with it. But I bet there have also been times in your life you've given out of wonder. Because God did something amazing around you or you saw a need and you felt that God is in that need. So this wasn't something you budgeted for. It may not have even been something you would talk to your spouse about. You just felt like in this moment God seems to be here and I'm going to give. This morning I want to talk a little bit about money and character. Because that's where Jesus takes us this morning. We're in a short series, a six, seven week series called The Path of the Cross. So what I'm trying to do is take the last week of the life of Jesus and just show you places Jesus went the last week of his life. Because he knew it was the last week of his life. He knew he was there and that he was on his way to the cross and he was going to die. And I'm trying to show you over the next few weeks that it's not just the content that flowed from the life of Jesus that we're going to focus on that. It's the location of where Jesus ends up going in that last week. It's in the temple and not just in the temple, but where he would go in the temple. It's on the Mount of Olives. It's strategic places, intentional places Jesus would go. And today I believe the locations matter of how we encounter God and that God is, Jesus is still so intentional about how he wants to interact and encounter you. So today we're going to be at the very end of Mark chapter 12. And I'm not going to go through all of Mark 12, but in Mark 12, there are five rounds of controversy that Jesus has with religious leaders and with Pharisees and with Sadducees and with scribes. It's like all of these people who at one time were enemies are coming together to try to catch Jesus in something he says, to try to catch him in heresy, saying something false, some way they can't accuse him. So Jesus has been through five rounds with these people. 
talking about taxes. They've questioned Jesus about taxes. They've questioned Jesus about what is the greatest command. They've, they've questioned Jesus about the resurrection. So they're asking Jesus all these questions, trying to catch him in something that he says. Five rounds of this, where his character has been attacked, he's been attacked. And after five rounds, uh, it's like Jesus flips it on them. And Jesus starts questioning their motives. And then it's like they're going to go their way because they're, they're done trying to catch Jesus or something. And Jesus is going to go his way. But it's like Jesus turning and is like, hey, one more thing. Have you ever been in controversy where something like that happens? Like you're about to go away from someone you were just in conflict with. And it's like, well, one more thing. I got one more thing to say. And here's what Jesus says. Now, it's, it's almost like he's talking to his disciples, but other people can hear it. And the way the story goes in Mark 12 is it doesn't tell you that the scribes had walked away from Jesus in this moment. So other people hear what Jesus says. Mark 12, look in your Bibles in verse 38 through 40. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So he's talking, I think, to his disciples, two people there, but who knows who else can hear what he's saying. And a few things Jesus makes clear out here is you may be able to fool people with your appearances of righteousness, but you cannot fool God with your appearances of righteousness. You may be able to put on a show at church and when you're around people and people can walk away thinking that's a righteous person and a godly person, but God knows how shallow a heart sometimes can be. You don't fool God with your appearance of righteousness, even though you can fool people. And Jesus is he's attacking. He's going after some of these religious leaders because they have taken religious postures they use religious language, yet they're hurting other people. And he's very specific here. They're hurting, they're devouring widows' houses, which I don't know exactly what that means, but I think we could all agree that's not good, whatever it is. And he also says something about, like for a show, they're, they're, like they say lengthy prayers. I don't, God's not anti-lengthy prayer. And what would often happen is Jews, even to this day, there are many Jews who pray a few times a day. It's like they pray the hours of the day. And I, and I don't think this is a bad thing. I know some Christians whose prayer lives have been strengthened because they've set their alarms to pray certain hours of the day. Certain hours of the day, something will go off, whether it's a phone or a watch, and remind them that, hey, it's, t it's time to be with God. And for a lot of Jews, even today, when those hours of the day come, they have specific prayers they pray. They may be written prayers, which I'm also not against praying written prayers. Jesus prayed written prayers. The Psalms are written prayers. Jesus taught people to pray the Lord's Prayer, which is supposed to do something for your heart, connecting to God. So that's not the problem. But when it came to festivals and when it came to the Sabbath, there were those who were in religious space who were expected to pray on top of just the, the written prayers that they were praying. So a lot of times what would happen is they would come in religious space, and whoever the leader was would begin reciting something, and the church would respond. They would recite back. So it would be like the leader who would say, the Lord is my shepherd, and all the, the crowd would respond. They were supposed to respond quietly, reciting whatever the leader was saying. But there were always those who tried to speak a little louder, or they would go into the temple and go up against a wall or prostrate themselves somewhere and they would begin trying to pray these lengthy prayers as a show. So Jesus goes at that. 
So you have to keep this story in mind when we read the next story, which is a story that if you've been in church very long in your life at all, you've heard the story of a widow who gives all she has. And I think it's important for you to hear what Jesus says to the scribes about how they're trying to act out their religion before you hear this story about the widow. Now, let me go through this story with the widow kind of slowly, all right? Because it starts like this. It says, Jesus sat down. Which is really interesting, especially in the book of Mark, because in the book of Mark, Jesus doesn't sit down much at all. He's standing up, he's moving, he's going from one place to another. Jesus sits down in a boat earlier in the Gospel of Mark. He sits down on a donkey when he rides into Jerusalem. He sits down here. There may be one or two other places where Jesus sits down. He doesn't sit down much in the book of Mark. Maybe he's sitting down out of exhaustion. He's tired. After all, he just came out of five rounds with teachers of the law and scribes and Pharisees, these moments of controversy. There were a lot of other places in the temple where Jesus could have sat down. But what the Bible says is that Jesus sat down, not just anywhere, but he sat down, if you go to that next slide, he sits down opposite the place where the offerings were put in. He's in the, he's in the treasury place, in the temple. And not only that, look at this, he began watching people put stuff in. So I don't know what the distance would be, but pretend this is like, this right here is the offering, the treasury. It would have been a little bigger than that. And Jesus finds a seat, and he is watching what people put in. Think about that next time you give on a Sunday morning, right? Like Jesus is watching you. And if you don't put anything in, he's asking, is that because you give online, or did you forget to give, right? <clears throat> he's watching what people put in, which is so interesting. And then the very next thing you read, the very next thing you read is that rich people are putting in a lot. They're putting in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two small coins. Now, I think it's good for us to remember that in those days, people had coins. Money was coins. One dollar bills. In those days, you didn't have a newspaper. So what a lot of the Roman leaders would do is they would use coins as propaganda. Where coins would have the faces of emperors on them and messages of who that emperor was. So any coin you held told you a couple of things. I mean, it was, it was value to it. But it also reminded you of who was in charge. And it also reminded you that if you don't pay taxes, there ain't no piece of Rome coming to you. Now, what was really interesting is, I, I don't know if there's anything to it, but at least the way Mark 12 tells it is that the rich people put their stuff in first and then the poor put their, in, put their money in. And the rich put in large amounts. So it would have meant, meant they had a lot of coins, which you would not have just seen it, you would have heard it. Because they put money in. And if you're really rich, you may like get a bunch of pennies instead of quarters. To make a really good sound, the money just keep going up. Excuse me, I'm not done yet. Hang on just a minute. My tide is still going. And then you have a widow who comes. And the sound of her offering was something like this. So somebody who came before who's just like a lot of money and then her. So this isn't just something you would see. It's something you would hear. And it says Jesus was watching people put things in. And then he says this, and we don't know this woman's name, but her story will now live on for eternity. 
calling his disciples to him. Which I think in this moment they were already close to him, but they were probably really distracted. So this may have been one of those moments when, I mean, I'm, assistant, I'm an assistant coach for my boys and their sports teams. And there are times when, when you're trying to talk to the kids and they're in a huddle after the game or before the game. And you're like, hey, hey, look at me. All right, don't look around. Look at me. It's when my wife will look at me or the boys and say, I need you to listen with your eyes. Put your eyes on me. And here they are. And Jesus says, it, begins, it says he begins calling them, and then he says to him, truly I tell you, the poor widow has put more into this treasury than all the others. Which I think you know he's not talking about the amount. But then he says, they, they all gave out of their wealth, but, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. A moment in this church, uh, back in 2009, we did an offering here. We just call it a give and take offering. It was a time I walked into an elders meeting, and I was like, I have an idea. Which anytime I do that, I just, I freak everybody out. I mean, it's, it's like a spiritual gift I have. I have an idea. What do y'all think of this? I was like, why don't we do a Sunday when we, after the offering, after people have given their regular offering, let's have a day where we just set up a couple of baskets and we're just going to invite people in the church to put coins and cash in. And then we're going to invite the people in our church who have a need that day to come and take money out. It's going to be a give and take offering and we're going to care for each other. So we did it and I had no clue what would happen that day. Set up a couple of baskets. I set up the moment after a sermon. The church had no, they didn't know this moment was coming. So people didn't have a chance to like bring any extra money on you. It was just coins and cash. And if you wanted to leave a blank check, you could leave a blank check. But the deal was, we're not just putting money in a basket. We're asking people in this church who have a need to come and take money out for the blessing of you, which... I mean, with that, there's a risk of humiliation. There's a risk of, of embarrassment. So when we started the moment, people were giving. No one was taking. And it was really cool hearing some stories come after that. I remember there was one woman sitting over in my section to the left, and she said, Josh, I never carry cash. And I looked at my husband. I said, do you have anything? And he said, no. And she said, I looked at my purse, and there was a $100 bill, so I went and put it in the basket. There are people who didn't carry their checkbooks around, who remembered that their checkbooks were in the car, so they ran out in the parking lot, and we had people leaving blank checks for 100, 500. I'm not exaggerating. Thousands of dollars. I think it was around 11, $12,000 ended up going into baskets, but they were overflowing with money, and no one was taking any money out. So as we were singing songs, I stepped back up, and I said, look, this is a give-and-take offering, so we're going to worship today until all this money is gone, and then people started moving. <clears throat> but how they moved is what was so beautiful. Is that most people didn't go to those baskets by themselves. They took the hand or they took the arm of somebody they knew, someone they were in relationship with. We had some leaders in this church who were aware of some other people who had a need. So they went and got them and said, I'm going with you. Every single penny was gone. And testimonies flooded in for weeks. One I'll never forget is a woman who woke up that Sunday morning and she looked at her bills and she thought she had paid all of them, but there were some health bills. And she had a bill that was $360 and she didn't know how she was going to pay it. And she came and she just reached in a basket and just took money and she went home, laid it out on the bed, counted it, it came out to $360. A few months after that, I received a letter from an anonymous person. I don't even know who this was. But they took money that day, and the Lord blessed them, and this money they sent me was like $1,000. 
Months after that, and they said the Lord had blessed them since the, that moment when they came and took money out of the basket, and they wanted it to return to the church tenfold how God had blessed them months before. It, whether it's a day like that or just in your life, there is something about when you give, you receive. And when we receive from the Lord, we should think about how we give to the world. Giving and receiving, when it's done at its best, cares for the body of Christ, and it shines a light in the world about who God is. Now, with this story about the widow and people putting money in the treasury, I think a question that a lot of times we don't ask is, where was that money going? And there's a lot of answers to that. Maybe some of the money was going to care for people, but I think if you keep reading what comes next, you know what some of the money was going to. And it's a chapter break, so sometimes we finish reading and then we pick it up and we don't keep stories connected. But the very next story is this. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And the temple in those days, it, it had been, they had been building that part of the temple over 40 years. And uh, I was, when I was with this group a few months ago, walking through the temple, a lot of the temple had been torn down, it was rebuilt, but there is part of the temple where the wailing wall is, where the temple, there are still stones that are there that would have been there in the times of Jesus. And these stones were massive. 100 tons, 37 feet long, 18 feet wide, 12 feet high, massive stones. And what this temple meant for the people, for Jewish people and people around that area, what it meant was, it meant security. It was security of God. For over a thousand years, the temple was a place where people would go to encounter God, to be with each other. But this temple wasn't just about the security that came from God. It was also the security that came from Herod and Rome because Herod wanted these Jews to have a magnificent temple because Herod wanted the Jews to like him. So Herod was investing money. Herod was investing architecture. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that these two little coins a woman put in, that 100% of it went to the temple, but a lot of the money people were putting in the treasury was going to this magnificent temple. That if you saw this for miles away, it would have been a blinding light coming off this golden dome. It was gorgeous, beautiful. And as the disciples begin walking away with Jesus, they look back and they're like, man, that place is beautiful from the outside. That place is going to be the security for all of us. And Jesus wasn't impressed. In fact, what Jesus says in verse 2 is, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on the other. Everyone is going to be thrown down. How's that? Like, it's a gorgeous place. A lot of money's going into it. It's, it's going to crumble. And in verse 3, you read that when they get to the Mount of Olives, maybe 20 minutes later, the disciples want to ask about this. When's this going to happen? Now, I'm not going to go through the rest of Mark chapter 13. But Mark 13 is where Jesus talks about the end of times, about tribulation. And this is where theories of rapture have come from and left behind series. And people come up with all kinds of theories about the end of times. And I'm not suggesting to you that you shouldn't be concerned about the end of times or you shouldn't study it. That's fine. But if you read anybody who tries to tell you that mathematically they have figured out when the end of times is, you should, you should be a little skeptical. Because Jesus talks 
all of chapter 13 about this, but then in verse 32, Jesus says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So if Jesus doesn't know exactly when it's going to happen, then what makes you think any human can figure out when it's going to happen to you? And here's what I think is so important, because of all 13, Jesus is talking to them about tribulation and violence, and these things are going to happen. At the end of 13, what he does is he calls them back to trying to pay attention to what God is doing right now. And it goes like this. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on your guard, be alert. You do, not, you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away and he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Listen to that phrase, keep watch. In some of your versions, it's stay awake. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. And what I say to you I say to everyone, keep watch. Stay awake. It could also mean be on alert. It's a word that can also mean to remain fully alive. I don't think Jesus right here is telling people, like, don't go to sleep, keep your eyes open. It's stay awake because God is doing something among you and you don't need to miss it. It's the same phrase Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane that we'll read about in a couple of weeks. Then when he goes away to pray, he tells his disciples, stay awake. Like, be alert. Be spiritually alert. Be looking for what God is doing among you. So everything I've walked you through this morning probably happened in a 90-minute, maybe two-hour block of time where Jesus went from controversies to watching the treasury to seeing this widow put in a couple of coins, to talking about a temple, walking to the Mount of Olives, and to, in just a short amount of time, so much Jesus processed. In ways he is trying to teach his disciples then, and, and in ways he's trying to teach us now, your security is not in a temple, it's not in a building, your security is in the heart of God. That what matters in your life should not be your platform, and how you build your reputation, it's how you lay that down to point people to the platform and the reputation of Jesus. It's that you don't just model the way this widow gave, but you make sure widows like that are taken care of in the world. And that you live your life with your eyes not fixed on the eternal gift, though it is there. And it's like sometimes we focus so much on eternity that we miss what God's doing right in front of us. And that you stay alert and you pay attention because there is something God is doing right now in your life, right now in the life of this church, tomorrow, wherever it is you go, that if we are alert, we may be invited to it. I want to ask the prayer leaders and the elders, if you will, surround this room for prayer. If there's anything we can do for you, we have people in the front, we have leaders who will surround this room. If you are here this morning and you've, you have never been baptized into Christ, I want to ask you to reach out to a leader, maybe fill out a card before you turn it in after church. Easter's coming just a few weeks away, and for some people, they just need to put a date on a calendar, and there need to be some decisions in your life that you begin taking seriously of what it, what it means for you and what it is God is calling you into. And if there's any way we can help you in that, we want to be here for you. Let's stand together and let's sing a song.